Medical rewrites, medical rewrites, medical. Hello and welcome to Medical Rewrites, the podcast that rewrites movie scenes with evidence-based medicine. I'm Megan Jeffries. Our medical rewrite today will be for Knocked Up. A deep dive will be about flatulence and conjunctivitis. As a heads up, this episode contains a few spoilers, but nothing a ton more than the title of the movie already gives way. Also, I'm going to be talking quite a bit about farts. So if that is distressing to you, this could be an episode to skip. Some details about Knocked Up, it was released in 2007. Movie budget was $25 million, which is alarmingly cheap, even though it sounds crazy pants. Box office brought in $220 million, so huge hit for the 2000s. IMDb rates it 6.9 out of 10. Rotten Tomatoes is higher than that at 89% for critics and 83% for audience. It was a huge smash. And it's streaming now on Max. We don't have to know a lot about the movie plot to break down this incredible scene we're about to witness. There are two protagonists in the movie, Allison, played by Katherine Heigl, and Ben, played by Seth Rogen. Allison got a promotion at work and goes to a club to celebrate with her sister, where she meets Ben. They proceed to ingest alcohol quicker than it could possibly be metabolized. And after inhibitions have been thoroughly lowered, they have condomless sex, and 24 hours later... One of Allison's single eggs becomes a two-celled embryo. Allison and Ben's friends all meet each other. New bonds are formed, especially between Ben and Pete, which is Allison's sister's husband. This is played by Paul Rudd. Ben and Pete are going on a road trip to Vegas, and they have to stop by Ben's house for supplies. The house is filled with his four roommates who answer the door looking unwell. Since when do we lock this fucking thing? Come on. We can't go, dude. Sorry. Holy crap. What happened? We got pink eye. Are you giving each other butterfly kisses or something? Ha ha ha. Very funny. That's not how you get pink eye. You get it from poo particles making their way into your ocular cavities. Hey, Ben. Yeah. How's it going? Um, I farted on Jason's pillow as a practical joke. He farted on Jonah's thinking it was mine, and then eventually pink-eyed my pillow. Um, not proud of any of this, but I think we've all... For- Forgiving each other, um, but we can't go anywhere. You can get pink eye from farting in a pillow? Totally. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, but you gotta be bare-assed. Jesus, Martin got it bad. Would someone take a dump right in your eye? No. Mm, no pink eye for me. I'm just really high. Well, stay back, guys. I gotta get my suit, okay? Out <laughs> <laughs> of you. Are you Debbie's husband? Uh, Yeah. So there's a lot to investigate here, but let's start at the beginning. Jason says you get pink eye from poo particles making their way into ocular cavities. We'll forgive him calling eyes ocular cavities because it has, I think, really great rhythm in this scene and it establishes Jason as the pseudo-intellectual of the group. But we cannot let poo particles slide because the roommates don't defecate on each other's pillows. They farted. So we don't need to investigate the entire gastric microbiome, but instead just the microbiological load of a fart. Before we look at microbiology of flatulence, let's do a shallow dive 
in the typical microbiology of conjunctivitis. As a general estimate, there's an 80-20 split between viral and bacterial, where viral is 80% and bacterial is 20%. Leave a little bit of room left over. I know we're at 100, but subtract a little bit and leave a little room for fungus and parasites in rare situations. The most common virus associated with conjunctivitis is adenovirus, which is responsible for like 90% of viral infections. This is the E. coli of UTIs. So adenovirus is by far and away the most common virus infection associated with viral conjunctivitis. The leftover viral infections could be herpes simplex, varicella, enterovirus, and coxsackievirus. The bacteria most commonly cited to be associated with conjunctivitis is Staph aureus, followed by the classic upper respiratory tract trio of strep pneumo, haemophilus influenza, and Moraxella cataralis. Other less obvious pathogens to keep in mind are Neisseria gonorrhea and Chlamydia trachomatis. Gonorrhea is actually the most common cause of bacterial conjunctivitis in neonates and sexually active adults, which is not two populations you generally see grouped together. But yeah, they can share this moment. Of note, big note, all of this microbiology data is old. Some of it decades old, especially the bacterial data. I looked hard to find more recent data from perhaps a new rapid diagnostic machine, but found nothing. It feels like a real gap in the market considering the frequency of conjunctivitis and how this could be such a good stewardship intervention. Sort of irrelevant to this rewrite, but I feel the need to share more recent primary literature on the topic. There is a systematic review that was published in JAMA in 2022 that aimed to identify which conjunctivitis symptoms are more associated with viral versus bacterial infections. The study included data from 32 different studies, and the authors found that there was no single sign or symptom reliably differentiating between viral and bacterial conjunctivitis. However, they did identify that the presence of pharyngitis, lymphadenopathy, or contact with another person with red eye were associated with modestly higher likelihood of viral conjunctivitis, and that mucopurulent drainage and otitis media similarly were associated with a higher likelihood of bacterial conjunctivitis. The authors paid special attention to watery versus mucopurulent discharge and found a weak relationship with watery discharge and viral infections and mucopurulent discharge and bacterial infections. The relationship was weak, though, because 21% of viral infections had mucopurulent discharge and 26 of bacterial infections had watery discharge. So not exactly a scene stealer of a sign uh, to differentiate the two. In summary, however, as it relates to this scene, the eye appears to be a pretty nice host to at least the sort of classic pathogens of the upper respiratory tract infections, plus Staph aureus, as well as some viruses. Now, onto the serious business of fart microbiology. As far as I can tell you, the research into fart composition dates back to 1816. Researchers used newly executed individuals, which is pretty ghastly, to gather gas from the intestinal tract and demonstrated the presence of carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrogen. Over the next 100 years, four more studies were done, not exactly at a quick pace, this particular area of research, but there were four more studies that were done with the primary outcome being the percentage of gas in each fart. All of these studies had single-digit sample sizes up until 1949, when researchers got a little more serious and they started controlling for variables, including cabbage, Brussels sprouts, and milk, specifically lactulose. Fast forward 80 more years to our current understanding of the gut microbiome 
And we now know that 99% of the intestinal gas consists of hydrogen, carbon dioxide, and methane. The 1% left is sulfur-containing trace gases like hydrogen sulfide, methane triol, and dimethyl sulfide, and then short-chain fatty acids. That's the smelly stuff, just that 1%. Just imagine if the 100% of the gas smelled. It's just these little things that smell. Now we have hordes of data linking microbiome composition with fart volume and gas composition, but none of these studies are assessing the microbiology of farts. The first data that I have to assess, and I'm using the term data very loosely here, very generous calling this data, it comes from Carl Kruzanecki, who's a physician who hosts a radio show in Australia, and he told the following story on the radio program back in 2001-ish. And I'm reading from his voice. It all started with an inquiry from a nurse. She wanted to know whether she was contaminating the operating theater she worked in by quietly farting in the sterile environment during operations. And I realized that I didn't know, but I was determined to find out. Side note, I loved that she asked about quietly farting as if she thought that would change the microbiology of the fart. But perhaps, we're going to talk about this a little bit, but the explosiveness of the fart could potentially impact the microbiology of it. But I do love the fact that she wanted everyone to know, I'm only quietly farting in the operating theater. Back to Dr. Kuzaninsky's voice. I contacted Luke Tennant, a microbiologist in Canberra, and together we devised an experiment. He asked a colleague to break wind directly onto two Petri dishes from a distance of five centimeters, first fully clothed and then with his trousers down. Then he observed what happened. Overnight, the second Petri dish sprouted visible lumps of two types of bacteria that are usually found only in the gut and on the skin. But the flatus, which had passed through clothing, caused no bacteria to sprout, which suggests that the clothes act as a filter. Our detection is that the enteric zone on the second Petri dish was caused by the flatus itself, and the splattering around that was caused by the sheer velocity of the fart, which blew skin bacteria from the cheeks and blasted it onto the dish. It seems, therefore, that flatus can cause infection if the emitter is naked, but not if he or she is clothed. But the results of the experiment should not be considered alarming because neither type of bacterium is harmful. In fact, they're similar to the friendly bacteria found in yogurt. Our final conclusion, don't fart naked near food. All right, it's not rocket science, but then again, maybe it is. End of story. I feel like their conclusion should have been to not fart naked during surgery since that was the origin question, or don't fart into an open wound or open cut. But I'm going to keep my criticism minimal here since this is literally our first data that addresses the question at hand. Can you fart on a pillow and give someone conjunctivitis? That's the holy grail of what we're trying to solve here. And so far, the story from the radio show in Australia 20 years ago is the best we have. Of note, I found another website from Dr. Kruzanicki that recounted the experiment, including a little bit more methodology, but left a little methodology out. In this story, a person working in the lab took a blood auger plate home. She then enrolled her eight-year-old son to be the experiment and held a plate five centimeters away from his fart exeter without any cloth between his fart exeter and the plate, which grew mixed skin and enteric bacteria. 
This version did not include the duplication of farting on the blood auger plate with cloth or pants on, however. There is some infection prevention data about rectal carriage of certain bacteria in healthcare providers and subsequent outbreaks in patients caused by that same bacteria. Several of these studies occur in labor and delivery units. Considering that vaginal births are not sterile procedures, it's hard to blame a fart for these outbreaks instead of dirty hands or dirty clothes like a tie or stethoscope, etc. One of these studies floored me and does give a little credence to the power of the fart as the perpetrator, so I'm compelled to share it with you. It was published in the American Journal of Medicine in 1991. The outbreak occurred in 1987. There were nine infections post-vaginal deliveries within a nine-week period. The same obstetrician had delivered six of these patients, placed fetal scalp electrodes in one patient, and was present in the delivery suite for the other two. So just present in the room, we're building our fart story. The infection prevention folks swabbed the nares, throat, perineum, and the anus of two physicians that were related to these cases and sent the results to a commercial laboratory for processing, but they didn't grow anything special. After another cluster of infections, the hospital processed the swabs on sheep's blood auger, and that grew group A strep from the anal swab of one physician. They treated the physician with penicillin V, 500 milligrams, four times a daily for 10 days, plus rifampin, 600 milligrams BID for five days, and instructed the physician to take hexachlorophene showers for three days. One week after treatment ended, the MD was swabbed again and was negative for group A strep. The infection prevention folks tested the MD another week later, a month later, and three months later after treatment, all of them negative. There were no postpartum infections for the next 14 months, And then disaster strikes again. Four women within 48 hours of vaginally delivering by this MD developed fever and endometriitis. He was tested again, and again, the anal swab was positive. Treatment this time consisted of oral vanc plus rifampin for seven days, followed by penicillin 250 milligrams daily for suppression. The infection prevention folks started to conduct surveillance cultures of the anus and throat indefinitely. The discussion of the paper talks about the efficacy of treatment options, but not once that they talk about how they think rectal colonization got into the vagina of his patients. There was no mention of glove use or habits, clothing policies either. How is discovering the mode of transmission not the top priority of this investigation? If we give the benefit of the doubt to the MD that they would be so careful about their hand hygiene after knowing that they were the source of an infectious outbreak, does this give more credence to the fart as the mode of transmission? It is certainly more preferable than thinking about this MD with just poop on their hands at all times. Back to the task at hand. The original question is, could Jay fart enough bacteria onto a pillow that would result in Jason getting pink eye? And then Jason fart on Jonah's pillow with enough bacteria that Jonah then gets pink eye. If they're all rectal colonizers of Staph aureus, Strep pneumo, H. fluor, MCAT, then maybe normal poop pathogens like E. coli and B. frage don't seem to be a good match for our eye or we would all have pink eye all the time, considering how often we touch our eyes with our hands that have a constant fecal veneer on them. The other possibility to make this scene work would be a viral conjunctivitis. In addition to boatloads of bacteria, 
there's also quite a few viruses in our guts. It's been coined as the virome, at least by some authors. Not sure how much I love this. That would mean that there's also going to be a bactome and a fungome. Both of those are auditorially gross to hear and hard to say. Back to the point, a recent review in eBiomedicine summarized the virome into three distinct groups. The largest component is bacteriophages, which is 90% of the virus load in the gut. The remaining 10% are the eukaryotic DNA viruses that we know and love, like adenovirus and herpes virus. There's also RNA viruses in there, like sapovirus, rotavirus, and coronavirus. I've read a couple articles in which the authors raised the possibility of SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus, being transmitted through farts, but none of them offer empirical evidence. So what's the rewrite? Is there a rewrite? I don't know that there is proof that the sequence of events can't happen. A lot has to go their way, however. One, all three of them have to either sleep with their eyes open or somehow make direct eye to pillow case contact. It's possible, obviously. And two, Jay and Jason need to be rectal carriers of a pathogen capable of causing conjunctivitis. This would be Staph aureus, Strep pneumo, H. flu, MCAT. If that's not the case, then Jay and Jason need to be carriers of adenovirus as part of their viral microbiome. And here's the part that we have to take the biggest leap, is that the fart would contain that virus in a high enough concentration that when you make eye-to-pillow contact, there's enough of an inoculum that you end up with conjunctivitis. So I think this might be the first non-rewrite of medical rewrites, but 100% investigation was totally worth it. Shout out to the ID workroom at CU, especially Mike Harden and Michael Casas for talking through this episode. Check the show notes for references used from this episode. If you know of a movie that deserves a medical rewrite, visit the website and complete the form. Also, if any of you know Judd Apatow, will you ask him if he found the same tiny story from Carl from Australia, the radio physician, and if that inspired this particular scene in the movie. This has been a podcast presentation by me, Megan Jeffries. Production and editing by Anne Conley, the crown jewel of this project. Music by Brandon Meager. Thank you.